You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend, to episode number 130 of the Business for Good podcast. This is one that's really personally resonant with me because it's an issue that I am particularly passionate about. And if you like wildlife and want to see more of it, well, this is one that's going to be for you as well. That is because most startups are founded by entrepreneurs who are hopeful that their idea is going to be the next big thing and pad their bank accounts in the process, of course. Yet sometimes companies are started not by enterprising capitalists, but rather by a far less likely progenitor, nonprofit charities. That's exactly what happened when the nonprofit organization, the National Wildlife Federation, decided to spin out a for-profit corporation devoted to advancing the charity's mission to protect wildlife. The company, Garden for Wildlife, is already selling native plants to homeowners seeking to make their yards a bit more non-human friendly. The basic premise is this. Too much wilderness has been destroyed by humanity to only rely on parks and preserves to give wildlife a chance to survive. While much of the animal biomass alive today is comprised of the animals who we farm for food, if we want to give free-living animals like songbirds a chance, we need to turn over a portion of our lawns and our corporate landscapes into wildlife-friendlier corridors, or what author Douglas Tallamy calls the homegrown national park in his quite excellent book on the topic, Nature's Best Hope. Take the state where I lived most of my life, Maryland, for an example. Maryland alone has more lawn than two times the land allocated to its state parks, state forests, and wildlife management areas all combined. Sadly, though, lawns are essentially biological wastelands capable of supporting less than 10% of the life that a more natural landscape can support. So why do we do it? Why do we homo sapiens like to create these nearly lifeless lawns wherever we go? In short, we do it because it makes us feel safe. Evolutionary psychologists suggest that humans prefer unobstructed views of our surroundings because that is what kept us safe on the African savanna where we evolved. As a result, as we've spread off of the savanna and across the globe, we've transformed forested ecosystems into something akin to our ancestral homeland. And this is not something that only started once civilization was founded. Even tribal hunter-gatherers living in forests are often quite proficient at deforesting their surroundings too. So, that is the bad news. The good news, though, is that homeowners can actually do quite a lot to make their yards more welcoming to pollinators and other friendly creatures. The key is to ditch part or all of your invasive water-thirsty lawn and replace it with a beautiful array of native plants and trees that will attract butterflies, hummingbirds, songbirds, and other amazing and harmless animals to your property. But where to start? That is where Garden for Wildlife comes in. Its entire business model is to make it easy for you to do just that without becoming an ecologist yourself. Just type in your zip code on their website and check out which species you hope to attract, and they will show you a menu of attractive plants native to your region that you can order straight from their website delivered right to your front door. Profiled by Martha Stewart Living and Better Homes and Gardens, Garden for Wildlife has raised $5 million from investors, primarily from its founder, the National Wildlife Federation, and is already bringing in an annual revenue of about a million dollars a year. The company is also crowdfunding now, meaning that for an investment as low as just $250, you can own shares in this startup. And we have got their CEO, Shelber Ali, on the show to talk all about it. While I have not personally used their services, my wife, Tony, and I four years ago removed our front lawn in Sacramento, where we live, and replaced it with a tiny little meadow of native drought-tolerant plants. 
Combined with the water fountain for our avian visitors, since then, our front yard has become a mecca for hummingbirds, songbirds, and other little neighbors we love watching. And it's even become a frequent stop for our human neighbors, who we regularly catch photographing the flowering beauty and bringing their kids to enjoy the sights as well. In other words, our own little homegrown national park has made life not only better for wildlife, but for a lot of humans too. This is an interesting story about one charity's decision to use the power of commerce to advance their cause. I'll now let their CEO, again, Shabra Ali, tell you all about it. Shabra, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Hey, it's my pleasure to be talking with you. It's a topic that I not only am passionate about, but have uh, participated in myself because in uh, Sacramento, where I live, we have this program called Cash for Grass. And you may not have heard of it, but it's pretty self-evident what it is where the city basically pays you to remove grass and put in either natives or drought tolerant plants to save water. It's pretty cool. And so I did this. I'm eager to talk about it. But first, let me ask you, Shubber, about how you got interested in this space in the first place, because it wouldn't seem so obvious based on your own background that you were going to be the the chief native pollinator friendly garden guy. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And, and it's funny, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't have guessed that I got here. But when I look backward at my career, everything I've done up to this point, actually is a piece of the puzzle that helps me do what I'm doing my job right now. But uh, how it all started was actually, uh, so I've been a gardener for about 25 years, just uh, as a hobby kind of thing on the side, wherever I lived, I always put in stuff to attract, you know, butterflies, birds, et cetera, and uh, go to the local garden center, Home Home Depot, Lowe's, any of those places and just buy pretty flowers and stick them in thinking they were helping. You'd see some stuff in the yard. And I've also it, it just uh, coincidentally been a supporter of the National Wildlife Federation since the mid 90s, just as an individual donor, and, you know, occasionally get an email, this sort of thing and read through it sometimes. Well, when we moved back here to Maryland from Northern California, four and a half years ago, the house that I bought had about two acres of lawn. And I'm not a big fan of lawn. I actually grew up in Southern California, where they have similar programs for lawn removal. We can talk about that. But I wanted to start putting in plants and shrubs and trees and things. And I just happened to get an email around that time from the National Wildlife Federation that said, this book had come out, Doug Tallamy's book, Nature's Best Hope. And it was like a needle across the record moment for me where, you know, that because I read the book and realized that everything I've been doing for gardening to help wildlife for the past 20 years had not only not been helping, it had actually been hurting the environment, which is a really kind of disjointed moment for me. And so, and the basic reason was I wasn't planting plants that were native to the area. And the book makes a really clear link between Lots of native plants, oftentimes very pretty flowers and, and shrubs and things like that, which is a loss of food source for the native pollinators and their caterpillars, which then becomes a loss of the food source for the birds that rely on those caterpillars for their young, which is why birds have been disappearing and why butterflies and native bees have been disappearing. So I said, okay, well, let me go buy native plants. And I went to my local Lowe's, in this case, where I live, that's the closest uh, garden center. And I spent three hours Googling every single plant in the garden center, and none of them were native. They were all invasive species from around the world. And that's when I realized the kind of the magnitude of the problem, because gardening is a $50 billion industry, but most of it is selling you essentially garbage plants that look pretty, but are actually hurting the environment. So I reached out to the National Wildlife Federation because I had a role as one of the global leads for innovation at Accenture. And I called them and said, I want to do a pro bono project with you to help you figure out how to solve this problem. 
because I'm not the only gardener out there with this problem, which is it, it kind of goes a, a, a spectrum from awareness, education, but then access. Because once I found out about native plants, I started looking for places to find them. And there were these little tiny nurseries here and there, but they were hard to get to and oftentimes only carried a few species. And so I said, what we need is to create more education and more access, meaning supply. And they agreed. So we did a bunch of workshops and then built a business plan and a whole vision for creating essentially what would start as an e-commerce business for native plants, where part of the trouble as well is knowing what's native to your backyard, right? It's not enough to say native because everything is technically native somewhere and say, well, what's native to you? So the National Wildlife Federation had built actually with Professor Tallamy a database called the Native Plant Finder, which literally gives trees, shrubs, and perennials across all of North America at the zip code level. So you can just punch in your zip code, it'll show you only what's native to you. And that became the foundation for this e-commerce business we helped them build. They built it in 2021 with the help of Accenture and Salesforce and some others, and then launched it. I was actually the first customer, got the plants and delivered by FedEx right to your doorstep just in time for the pandemic. So you go online, you punch in your zip code, you only see what flowers are native to your area. And then you pick the ones you like, if you want to help monarchs or hummingbirds or whatever species you want to help, because they actually show you the list of species that each set of flowers or individual plants they sell supports. And they get delivered right to your doorstep. And all you have to do is dig a hole, put it in the ground. And then every year, because they're perennials, they come back bigger and better. And it's astounding, right? They, you know, so instead of having to buy plants every year, you put them in the ground and every year they come back on their own and you're getting more and more of it. Within a year, we saw a, a massive impact in our yard, just in terms of the number of different wild songbird species, butterflies. I had turtles showing up because I dug a pond. All kinds of things happened. It was really amazing. So I went back to them in 2022 and said, there's a huge market opportunity, but you're a not-for-profit, actually the largest not-for-profit for habitat conservation and environment in the US, it, you know, they're $150 million business or so, but they don't know how to run a company. So I said, what you really need to do is spin this out as a for-profit business to go after that $50 billion gardening market and be the biggest shareholder because then the equity will be worth a lot to you as a, as a, an asset. And it took about nine months, but they finally kind of wrapped their heads around what we need to do to do that. And they said, we will spin it out on the condition you come and be the CEO. And so there's kind of how it happened because I've built companies before. I've sold previous companies I've had. I've also done big partnerships and big consulting and obviously was part of the formation of the idea. So I came in in October 2022 and we spent about nine months doing all the legal works to actually spin a department out of a not-for-profit into a separate C corporation, which is officially what we are now. On September 1, we became a separate company. All the employees transferred over. There's now 15 of us. But we have a very, very strong relationship with the National Wildlife Federation, and they are our biggest shareholder. They own over 80% of the shares in the company. Employees have the rest right now. And um, our mission is their mission, to create habitat to help bring back uh, declining species. We're just using commerce to do it. Great. So I want to get into that as to why using commerce as opposed to keeping it as a nonprofit and why you think you'll better achieve the mission uh, of the organization that way. But let's just talk about this book first that you said was, you know, bringing it all to you first. I imagine, you know, you got this email about that book. You decided to read it. You probably were not thinking this is going to shift your career in such a major way, let alone uh, cause you to be the CEO of a new startup. 
But I read it based on your recommendation, and I just want to summarize it. So again, it's called Nature's Best Hope by Douglas Tallamy, and it was really good. It was really good. First of all, he's a funny writer. I mean, even you know, for some people, if you're not into nature writing, he still is actually a really funny writer who I enjoyed reading. But the basic premise of Tallamy's book, Nature's Best Hope, is that you know, basically too much wilderness has now been destroyed by the top invasive species on the planet, which is human humans. And if that we want to give wildlife like birds and bees and butterflies a chance, basically, we have to do it in our own properties, right? We have to turn our own lawns and our own corporate landscapes into wildlife friendly corridors, which he refers to as the homegrown national park. I really like that, like the idea of having your own national park right on your own property. But, you know, his basic argument is like, look, we've done so much damage that if we care to actually try to save and salvage some of the uh, species on this planet and not drive them into extinction, the only real hope is that there's so much lawn and so much corporate landscape that we just need to personally do this ourselves and not just hope that state parks are going to be created or national wildlife refuges are, are going to be created. And so let's just talk about the scope of this problem for a second, Shubber. Like if you think about the opportunity with how many lawns are out there. What are we looking at? Like, you know, how, how how much impact can we actually make? I mean, you have two acres, but most people don't end up anywhere near that. You know, my lawn but is you don't, a small fraction of that. So, you know, what do you need? You, you actually, if you take a six by four foot portion of your lawn, however big your yard is, and just dedicate that to native plants, you will see an impact. The issue is kind of two parts. One is, the amount of lawn we've created in this country over the last 200 plus years, building off of the European kind of model that when the, when the founding fathers came over, they, they're like, we want the estates like they have in England. And so what do they do? You get Monticello, you get Mount Vernon, you get all these massive, you know, rolling lawns, which then, by the way, we have to mow, which throws more carbon in the atmosphere and does all these other things, but they're essentially sterile and they have very, very shallow root structures, right? So you're not, you're not getting the water absorption. You're not getting the beneficial insects. You're not getting the carbon that gets sequestered. The thing is, if I can't remember the exact number of parks that he mentioned, but he said if everybody just took, was it half of their lawn across the U.S. So not the whole thing. We're not saying get rid of your yard because you know if you have kids and you want them to play out on the lawn, you have a lawn, right? But took half of it, it would be a national park greater than you know Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and a bunch of others combined. Yeah, right. Yeah, but, you know, but it's he, a great patchwork. Yeah, I mean, you know, Tallamy says in, in the book, he says in, in the state where you live, Maryland, he said, you know, in Maryland alone, there's over a million acres of lawn, which is more than twice the area allocated to its state parks, state forests, and wildlife management areas all combined. I mean, think about that. Right. The lawns alone, it's, it's hard to uh, fathom just how much space humans take up, like not our actual bodies, but the lawns that we're on. And then if you think about right. it, like if you think about all the space taken up to provide us with food also, like it's just huge, huge amounts of cropland to, to devote and defeat. Well, and, and that lawn, uh, again, like the root structure, that was really awesome poster in our office. It was actually artwork that was done back in the 90s, a pretty famous drawing, but it's, it shows the root structures of lots of different grasses and native plants. And then it shows lawn and lawn only goes down about four to six inches. I and mean, that's turf. You can pull it out and it's basically compacted soil below it. But if you put in native plants, their roots go down as far as 15 feet. And so places like Maryland actually pay you. There's a program here in Montgomery County called Rainscapes that will pay you $7,500 for your residence if you've got a place where water runs off during rainstorms to put in a rain garden. Because what you're doing is the water gets absorbed instead of running straight to the storm drains and to the Chesapeake. And so instead of spending all that money later trying to put a Band-Aid on the Chesapeake because it's polluted, if you can actually get the water to be absorbed 
and filtered in the ground where it should go in the first place, that actually helps. And that goes to the program you talked about on the West Coast. So my hometown of Long Beach, same thing, $3 a square foot to take out your lawn and put in drought tolerant plants, which actually absorb and, and sequester that water. $3 a square foot is pretty good. And Sacramento, it's $1 per square foot, and it's up to 2,000 square feet. It's a little bit more generous if you're doing a corporate landscape, but for your residential home, it's $1 a square foot. But still, it's pretty awesome. And I, I will say, my wife and I did this at our home, and the benefits have been so tremendous. We had an entirely grass front lawn, just like nearly all of our neighbors do, and we switched it. We took out 100% of the grass in the front lawn uh, we kept some in the back for our dog, but in the front, it's entirely now drought-tolerant native plants. And what was once basically a desert is now an unbelievable oasis of wildlife activity from hummingbirds to other songbirds to butterflies and more. So much so that you know, I even saw um, owls hovering above our yard, <laughs> which I don't know. Really? But, yeah. Yeah. It's really incredible. Like It's not that big, but still you know, it turned into the place where our neighbors literally on a regular basis are taking photos of our lawn. They come by and they bring their kids by to look at it. It's like a little meadow. It's small. Like this is not a, we don't have a big yard at all, but it's a really beautiful place that people in the neighborhood really appreciate. And there've been a couple people who've been inspired by it to change their own lawns up, but sadly not as many as I would like yet, but you know, hopefully through the- Have you put a, a certified wildlife habitat sign out in front yet? No, I, I've seen those. I, I know that I know that those exist, but we haven't had it certified or anything. It's just a well. Well, so so certification is actually a self certification process, but NWF uh, has been doing that for fifty years. Yeah, and all you need are four things, which I think you probably have, and then you can get a really cool sign. But what you said is actually, and you also go in the register there. But what's what's really good is NWF's data shows that when somebody does certify and put a sign up, their neighbors are sixty percent more likely to do the same thing. So part of it is. Like you're saying, people look at that and they go, oh, okay. And so if you just go to nwf.org slash certify, you can actually learn more about the program. It's really easy. And I certified my house the first year after we moved here. Right. You know, maybe the other thing I was going to say. Oh, God. I was going to say, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I'd be happy to. A former coworker of mine, Krista Rakavan, she used to live in Maryland, but now lives in Ohio. I know that she recently got herself certified as like a native landscape design person. And so, uh, um, I know she has some thoughts on this too and is in favor of these certification programs. So I'll check in with Krista also on this. Um, but I, I do, I, I do want to ask you, Shubber, about why we want this because you raised this issue about how like lawns came to be that we were trying to uh, replicate what we had seen from European gentry. And that's why we get these big lawns because most of us just think, you know, lawns are the norm now, right? Like 99% of homes have kind of a lawn. So why, you know, the, the question becomes like, how, how did this come to be? Because it was once associated with aristocracy, and now it's for anybody who has a home. And I was really riveted in Talamy's book to learn about the history of this. And because, you know, it, it's a lot more in depth than just like wanting what the Europeans had, because why did they have it? Like, why'd they do it? And it's like, well, yes, it's a display of wealth that you have all this land that you can do nothing with. You're so wealthy that you can just have a dead area in front of your house that is not producing food or anything. But there's something psychologically about it that humans seem to like. And so tell me about that. Like, you know, why is it that humans are attracted to this big, short, grassy landscape? So there's there's two parts that, that I've seen. Well, one of them actually goes back to a lot of the work I did before this. 
So the first part is there's also, I think he mentions it in the book, is, you know, nature was always a scary thing for humanity for the longest time, right? You know, things live in the woods and places like that. So having clear lines of sight where you could actually have these big vistas looking out from your home gave people a bit of a sense of security. You don't really need that when you're living in suburban tract housing, to be honest, but we kind of kept the mentality. And that actually goes to the second thing is there's a there's a term we used to use in the consulting world. And it's actually a, a book that I'd started writing before I took this job, but then this job became all-consuming, so it's sitting half-finished on my shelf. But it's on a topic called orthodoxies. And orthodoxies are something that are all around you. And that's really, and that's part of how we created this business was to say, how do we break some orthodoxies? But it's nothing more than a fancy way of saying, that's the way we do things, right? And they exist everywhere. They exist in business. They exist in government. They exist at the PTA, at your local school. They exist in anything you do virtually. If you just do things using a heuristic that may have been adopted long before you got there. And so one of the reasons we have lawns today and every development that's out there is because every development out there has lawns. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's so true. It's like, well, why do we do it? Because all of our neighbors did it and their neighbors before them did it. Right. It's so true. But um, there is something to this idea, like from an evolutionary psychology perspective of why humans would like this. And you mentioned, well, you know, it doesn't really provide much of a survival benefit for us in a uh, suburban uh, landscape like we live in now. But our minds don't know that, right? Like a blink of an eye ago, we were living on the savanna. And so, right, exactly. and so to our minds, it obviously hasn't caught up with the fact that that type of landscape is conducive to survival uh, because we're still living on the African savanna from our mind's perspective. And so if, if having not much obstruction, visual obstruction, to be able to look around and see if there are predators coming is the way that you have a better survival, of course, we're going to be more comfortable with that. I mean, this is why we always think about the forest as a dangerous place, but a meadow is somewhere that's safe for us. And so like, it's, it's like we're almost like fighting human psychology here. We need a, a new type of heuristic to use the term that you did. And it makes me think, well, you know, it's hard to fight against against like what we are designed for evolutionarily, but we can, you know, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, we've fought against so many other things from our evolutionary background that, you know, are things that we have can, are, at least that we're capable of overcoming. Like, you know, we don't just sit around eating sweets all day, even though our ancestors certainly would have. Now, some people might do that, but not everybody, not everybody. And we don't need everybody. We need some people who can just say, hey, listen, I'm open to having a better type of landscape. And so- well- Oh, go on. I'm sorry. So on, on that note, there's, there's, there's also a lot more evidence coming out in an area that's uh, only recently getting proper scientific research. So on the reasons why we should do this, now it doesn't mean, again, go completely to the other end of the spectrum, but if everybody took a small portion of their yards, what you would do is create little islands for the wildlife and the population. Like, like a friend of mine in Chicago in the loop put some native plants on his balcony and he texted me a month later when a monarch showed up. He was, he was freaking out. He was like, this is amazing. Like they, they can find it if you make it for them, but we need to create these oases. The reason why is so there's another book that I highly recommend that I read. Again, all of these that I discovered as a result of coming into this industry and, and taking on this job. But Richard Louvre wrote this book, Last Child in the Woods, back in 2008. And it was, it was groundbreaking, right? So, what and the, the subtitle is Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. So, there is a really clear body of scientific work now that's only growing on. What is happening to humanity because we're becoming disconnected from nature? And the pandemic really was an eye-opener for people who then had to spend time at home. We're taking walks outside. We're, we're immersing themselves a little more in nature to see it's actually very restorative. And it's not just anecdotal. And it's not just, you know, 
almost like a placebo effect. There's actual scientific data on effects of like even taking a walk in the woods and what it does to your blood pressure and to the produce, production of serotonin and all these things, you know, reducing stress. You know, the, the, the Japanese do forest bathing, right? And they've got really good science on it they've been doing for 20 years. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the Japanese because I just got back from a work trip to Thailand and I spent nearly all of that time in Bangkok, which, you know, has very few trees in downtown Bangkok. And uh, after a couple of days there, I started feeling it like it was such an urban landscape, with virtually no nature whatsoever. And so I took a walk over to a very beautiful park, which was remarkably close to, you know, what is completely urban, but it's called Benchakiti Park. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but that's how it's spelled and that's how I would pronounce it. But it's a beautiful, beautiful park with trees and water and, and there's, you know, very, it's very serene. And I'll tell you, just psychologically, I felt better going there. And I, I thought about this because I was reading the book at the time. And Talami talks about vitamin N or vitamin nature, which we should, you know, view as like, don't, you don't want to be deficient in vitamin N, so to speak. So I, I really like that. And I, I personally felt that for sure, that there was this benefit. And so I certainly, you know, am favorable to the idea of doing something for wildlife. I think it's great. Like I do want to garden for wildlife, but it's also like gardening for us, you know, giving us something. To, it is for you. Exactly. So let's, um, so let's talk about the actual business then, Shubber, because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you talked about what it was like to spin out from a nonprofit charity into a for-profit corporation. Why couldn't they have just done this on their own? Like, why couldn't the national... Well, they were doing it on their own. Right. So what, so what was deficient about it? If they're, you, you said they were, you know, they were making some pretty good revenue as a mission-oriented department with a for-profit, you know, trying to do some commerce. But why is it better to start selling shares in a company and have a profit motive here? So there are a couple of reasons. The first is that the people who were running it were people who worked in a not-for-profit and didn't have the business experience. So in theory, you could hire in a bunch of people to work at the not-for-profit who have decades of business experience. So they'd have to know supply chain and marketing and other parts of operations fulfillment and all the things that go with, you know, an e actually building an e-commerce platform and the rest. And when I got there and I lifted the hood on the, on the car, so to speak, what I saw wasn't an engine, but like two hamsters on a treadmill. because most of it was set up the way that people who were their best efforts, but who didn't have decades of experience in those things doing did, right? So contracting with their supply chain was all in the favor of the supply chain and not of the business. And so their, you know, their, their margins were all out of whack and their fulfillment model was all out of whack. And, you know, we gave them a very clear plan for, you know, get local growers in every state. So you have very short distance from grower to, to customer. And they could actually even like go and do pickup as opposed to shipping. What do they do? They set up in order to, to try to scale quickly. They set up one big grower in Wisconsin, and then they're FedExing plants to North Carolina and Maine and all places in between. Well, the carbon impact alone, just, I mean, that doesn't fit the brand. It doesn't fit what you're trying to do. But it's also expensive as heck, which makes the plants more expensive. So there's like a whole series of things that just were easier to do if you're in a business. And then you say, okay, well, why couldn't those people be hired into the business? And the answer is because if you want to get people to work for a business as a startup, you either give them equity or you pay them market rates. Well, there's no way an not-for-profit paying market rates right off the bat. And so you go, okay, well, if you spin it out and you give people equity, you're going after a multi-billion dollar market. You've got NWF and it's millions of existing members. So you have ready-made customers, right? So if you can create a business to sell to them, the equity value, let's just imagine for a moment this becomes, you know, a quarter billion dollar business, which is very, very conceivable in the next, you know, five to six years at the rate it's growing. They're 80% of that is worth more than all the revenue they bring in in a year today. 
just as their equity holding, right? So we're like, and then we're going to keep growing the business. It's not like we're going to stop and, and yeah. sell. We're going to, the goal is very explicitly to list the company. Right. So I, I read recently that the company has about a million dollars in revenue so far annually. Is that accurate? That was, that was last year's revenue. And okay. our expectation this year is we're forecasting between three and five. Three and five. Okay. So you think that um, this year in 2024, let's say on the optimistic side, you have 5 million and that by yeah. 2030, you're going to be at 250 million. No, 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 no. That's the market value of the business. Remember when you list the company. That, you're not talking about revenue. revenue. Okay, got it. Got it. You're talking revenue about revenue will be about forty to forty-five million at that point, but right. we will be at well over fifty percent margins. Right. We're already this mm -hmm. is the thing that that which is why I love this over previous startups, is we actually make money on every product we sell. We just yeah. aren't at scale yet to cover our, our overhead. Right. Yeah, it's a very but it's this a very year is where we break that. It's a very novel business model. I've not heard that much about it where you actually make profit, where you actually you know, s sell things for more than it costs you to produce them. It's weird. Yeah, it is crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, <laughs> it's an odd idea, especially in the last several years in startup land. So let me just ask a devil's advocate question of you <clears throat> then, Shubber, because you're talking about how there's this great market opportunity. You think you might get to a quarter billion dollar valuation with multiple tens of millions of dollars in revenue why couldn't somebody do like what I did, right? I wanted to do this to my yard. So I went to my local nursery and they have a section there called like, you know, natives and drought tolerant perennials and so on. Why can't I just go do that? Why should I use garden for wildlife as opposed to just go get these from my nursery? Well, in the long run, that's exactly where you will get them from. But there will be a branded section that's called garden for wildlife with the brand of the National Wildlife Federation and all of our partners behind it, like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and all the others that we're partnering with, right? The, but in the short term, most people don't have access to native plants. You're lucky that you have a garden center that does that. But most people still shop at the big box stores and they do not carry natives, right? And that selection is limited. If you want to go to a local nursery, which are these mom and pop businesses, and we're partnering with them, they have a limited selection. And the other thing they don't do is they don't do e-commerce. They very specifically like, we grow plants. We don't. I was just at a conference last week for the Mid-Atlantic region, which had a bunch of native plant growers at it. And we're talking to them about joining our supply chain where we will get the orders, we will then route them to them, they grow the stuff for us, and then we do fulfillment and take it away. Because they don't want to do last mile. They don't want to do any of that. They want to grow plants. It, you know, many of these mom and pop shops are like, you know, five people in a $3 million business, and they're happy doing what they do. So, so how does it work? Somebody goes to the Garden for Wildlife website, you can plug in your zip code, and then you'll get a list of plants that are uh, native to your area. And then you can select for what you're interested in attracting, whether it's, you know, hummingbirds or butterflies, yeah. etc. So, so some of the things that we built over the last year to make this even easier is you go, you put in your, your zip code, it's the first step, and then you're shown a combination of both collections and single species. Collections are pre-curated by a horticulturalist, groupings of plants that serve a specific purpose. So we have one that's called monarch munchables. Why? Because it has milkweed and a specific milkweed, depending on what part of the country you're in. But it also has two other plants that flower after the milkweed does because the adult monarchs need additional food, not just the, the food for the caterpillars, right? So you need to get three seasons of bloom. And so that's a curated collection for monarchs. There's also single species. If you're like, hey, I want to just buy a bunch of little blue stem grasses, you can just buy the single species and, and order it. Once you place the order, and it shows you the impact and all that stuff right there on the page, you place the order, you put in your credit card, and boom, you know, it shows up via FedEx. Hmm. And we ship right now between late April and mid-late October. So what happens between the time that I click order and the time that it shows up? So you don't have your own greenhouse or your own nursery. So you have very little CapEx associated with this, right? 
Yeah. So right now, what we have is a network of seven growers that we've contracted with in different parts of the country. So we have Colorado, Wisconsin, Connecticut, North Carolina, Florida, Minnesota, and oh yeah, Southern Virginia. That's our most recent one. Hidden Gems Farm. It's a husband and wife couple. They've got three acres. In that case, we actually built them a greenhouse, right? Because wow. they wanted to grow native plants, but they didn't have the capital. And we're like, okay, we'll build a greenhouse. We'll put the equipment in there. You provide the supply for us. And that allows us to then serve the local markets of North Carolina, Virginia with a long-term loyal supply partner, right? And then we will actually, they'll earn that greenhouse over a period of about two years from the plants they supplied with at lower cost and everybody wins, right? So this is how we, we help support local businesses. What happens is the order goes through our website, through Shopify, and then it's routed through our Salesforce and our order management system, ultimately goes directly to whichever greenhouse has the species that were being ordered for that state, right? So we have like, it's just, you know, relational database and lookup tables and has the inventory available. That order then gets sent to them, a label gets printed, they literally pack and pull and put in the boxes and FedEx gets an API um, link sent to them saying we got orders to pick up, FedEx shows up picks up the boxes of stuff and nice. off it goes and you get it two to three days later. So it's kind of like your own Instacart or your own DoorDash, but for instead of ordering from a menu of dishes that you want, you're ordering a type of plant that you want and it's got to meet these screens about being native to your area and wildlife friendly and drought tolerant and so on. And I presume perennial or are you doing annuals also? So no, 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 we do, we do native perennials and we also do shrubs. So we do like native azaleas, Carolina mm-hmm. roses, in a couple of years, we'll get to trees, but it takes a while to grow trees. So while we already have that in like kind of our back-end production, they won't be ready for sale and shipping because some places will sell you bare root trees. But if you've ever received a bare root tree, you know why you never want to sell a bare root tree because literally it looks like a stick with a little baggie with roots at the bottom. Mm. And it is very underwhelming from a customer point of view. Yeah. Okay. You you mentioned caterpillars a moment ago. And so for, for me, this is something I didn't really think about that much was, you know, if you want butterflies obviously you need caterpillars but having the you know having the plants that butterflies like to eat is not the same thing as having the nutrition and habitat available for the caterpillars so you could have let's say milkweed uh, which could be helpful for adult butterflies but not necessarily giving them the ability to procreate because you don't have the conditions that are necessary for the caterpillars to thrive so Ptolemy talks or Ptolemy excuse me talks about this in his book nature's best hope but tell me what do you need for these caterpillars like what is how do you create a caterpillar friendly environment which is like you know the basis of birds basically not just the monarchs but you know if you want birds to be able to eat you really need lots of caterpillars i was shocked to these birds are you know eating literally like thousands of caterpillars a day that they need to keep to feed their babies so what do you need in order to to basically incubate some caterpillars in your yard yeah so there's a couple of things one is putting in those native perennials there's a lot of them in our, our there are certain ones that are called keystone species that support like hundreds of different species of moths and butterflies and the rest. The monarch's actually just the most extreme edge case that everybody's familiar with because of all the campaigns that save them because they have hyper evolved to only feed on one kind of plant. The caterpillars can only feed on milkweed. The adults can feed off of anything that provides the pollen that they can actually get it from, but the caterpillars thank, have to eat the milkweed. Thank you for correcting my, my misunderstanding of that. I appreciate it. No, quite all right. And so, so milkweed no milkweed, no baby monarchs. No baby monarchs, no adult monarchs. It's really that simple, right? But once you get the adult monarchs, you need to have other kinds of flowering perennials in the other seasons, which allows them to continue to feed after they've hatched and, and they're still before they migrate again. And this actually, just going back to the website, 
one of the things we added last year was filtering like you have on Yelp. You can say, I want lunch, $2 signs, Italian, you know, dine-in. And you can put those filters and you'll only see those restaurants near you, right? Open now. Well, you can do the same thing now saying, I want things that are you know, red or between two and four feet tall or dry soil or clay soil or full sunshine or shade. Or, and you do the filters and then it'll only show you the plants that meet those criteria. So you can design your yard, right? So, which is always very helpful. And we, we introduced that last spring and people seem to really like that. But going back to the caterpillar. So another thing that people don't realize is they're like, okay, well, I'm going to put a big oak tree or a, a maple tree or something in my yard, which is great because it supports lots of species. But then I've got lawn all around it. Well, the problem is a lot of these, these tree caterpillars actually drop to the ground and burrow into the soil and then hibernate and kind of develop in the soil and then eventually will emerge and then fly, you know, and then transform and fly off. The issue is that ground is super compact. Again, what I was saying about turf is turf is really dense, right? You know, you've got the six inches and then it's hard. And it's very hard for them to burrow in there and do that. So what they, they basically, they drop and die. And so if you actually put native plants around, whether it's shrubs or perennial flowers, whatever else around it, you're actually creating a zone of life around your tree. So if you've got a lawn and you've got like a maple tree in it, just put a, a small native garden right around the tree and you'll have an impact because you're then creating a place where the caterpillars can actually thrive. Right. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about this. In fact, I do have a really big tree in my front yard and the base of it is just a bunch of rocks. You know, there's no, it's not grass, but it's, there's nothing. It's just rocks. And I've thought about, well, maybe yeah. I should be putting something there because the the term, which I hadn't thought about before that I was introduced to me recently was this uh, idea of three-dimensional gardening, right? So instead of just having a tree, you have something like below it. And instead of just having, you know, the plants below, you have some shade that's being provided by a tree as well. And it, it made me think about how the fact that, you know, you don't have to do all or nothing. Like if you want to right. do something, you can think about lawn as more like a throw rug as opposed to a wall-to-wall carpet. That you don't have to have, you know, your entire room carpeted wall to wall, but you can still have that rug, but then allow something for wildlife as well around there because the lawn itself is basically your it's an un, it's like an artificial desert that you've created there. So, yeah, and, and and the other part is like for anybody who's listening to this podcast who have you know young kids or planning on having kids at some point, if you just take again a section on the side of your lawn, so think of it almost like furniture on your wall to wall carpet. And you're putting like a sideboard up or you're putting up, you know, a, a cabinet for your stereo and all the rest of that. Imagine that as being the native garden. You don't have to leave the rest of it. If you want lawn, that's fine. Personally, I, I hate mowing lawn and I, I don't find it ridiculous to pay somebody to come and mow my lawn every week because it's just, uh, you, it's just a waste of money as well. But, but if you just take a section, like you go buy some of those nice like paving stones or rocks, whatever, from, again, a Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, you know, garden center near you, and then just take that little area and put in native plants there. And watch and see the difference. It's a place where, like your kids go and, and look at caterpillars. You can discover the first time you see this kind of butterfly or this kind of bird. And that's the other really cool thing is one of our partners is the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And they have an app that's really cool. And I tell everybody about it. Uh, the best way I can describe it is it's Shazam for birds. It's called Merlin. And it's a free app. You download it and it's got every single bird in North America. And you literally just stand outside if you hear birds chirping or singing or whatever. And you push record, and it will identify every bird for you based on their bird song and tell you what they are. And then you can get more information by clicking on them. And it's free. But what's really cool is once you start doing this, you're going to start noticing more and more birds showing up in your yard. Because I have like species I never saw when we first got here. We now have 
15 to 20 different ones in our backyard all the time. And it's fantastic because the bird song is also proven with recent science to actually make people happier. So you want a free tonic? You want free healthcare? Here you go. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Well, we'll, we'll include a uh, link to the Merlin app in the show notes of this episode for businessforpodcast.com. It looks awesome. I was just uh, checking it out while you were speaking and uh, it looks like a, a, a cool app that I will certainly download myself uh, for sure. Okay. So Shubert, let me ask you, like you have had a, a pretty lengthy now career doing startups, working at Accenture. You've, you've done a lot of things in your life and now you are running this new startup where you already have the backing of a pretty large organization, but you need to sell shares too, right? If 80% of it is owned by a nonprofit organization and 20% is owned by the employees, eventually you're going to start actually raising capital, which is what you're trying to do now. So I noticed that you're selling safes or simple agreement for future equity on the website that people can directly invest into the company and, and get some future shares in here. So tell me, what are you trying to raise? What do you think the valuation today ought to be uh, for that safe or like, what's the cap on the safe and what are the terms of the investment here that yeah that you're proposing? So, great question paul let me let me just clarify a little bit so we actually did a safe that closed in october it was oversubscribed we had a uh, we'd set a target of four million dollars we actually ended up raising five million nice. uh, the lead investor was this, the national wildlife federation huh. so they doubled down on their investment but then we had other uh, investors as well i was an investor the chairman of the board was an investor a number of others were investors as well because we all believe in the mission what we did on the back of that is again, and this actually goes to your question of, you know, why Garden Wildlife and not just some other business or whatever else that could do this too, is the National Wildlife Federation it brings millions of members with it, right? Which are ready-made customers. So if I only ever sold to NWS membership, this is a billion dollar business. But leaving that aside, what I also want to do is turn them into investors and not just customers, right? Because they support the mission. They support NWF and this is NWF's mission. So we actually launched a, uh, a Reg CF crowdfunding round late last year, and it goes through at the end of April. This so in about four months it closes, or three and a half months, and that's actually an SEC registered offering. But it's open to anybody. You don't have to be accredited, so you can invest, you know, as little as two hundred fifty dollars and buy shares, common shares in Garden for Wildlife. That's you're now investing in the mission yeah, the, of the business. The minimum investment is two hundred and fifty dollars. Correct. And the reason we're doing that is, you know, it's one is to create kind of stickiness with, with a much larger base of what become what we call investors, right? Investors, customers, but actually evangelists. But also because it's just working capital that lets us scale faster. So to get, you know, from three to five million to 10 million in revenue next year allows us to build more greenhouses and do other things we need to do to make us more scalable faster. So we don't have to go out and raise additional rounds. Because again, as we said earlier, profitable in every unit. Right. So, and what what is the valuation that if you invest 250 or $250,000 like what's the invest what's the valuation that you're investing at? So the valuation on this Reg CF round is 25 million, mm -hmm. which is on the back of the safe round which was actually capped at 25 with a 20% uh, discount so they effectively got a 20 million valuation. And uh, the the thing to me that's really exciting is that we don't see doing series B, series D, series, you know, all the rest of those later on, like other ones do. So people keep getting crunched down. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So it's a $25 million pre-money valuation, minimum investment, $250. And you can invest through your website, right? So if you go to Garden for uh, if you go to Garden for Wildlife website that you can directly invest there. There's a, it's actually invest.gardenforwildlife.com and 
our our partner, the the actual securities broker that's doing this for us is DealMaker. Then they're actually running the platform and the rest. But there's a video on there that explains the business, talks a little bit about it at the at the recommendation of my marketing department. If you invest ten thousand dollars or more, you get dinner with me. Um, <laughs> nice, very good. For better or worse, I'm even happy to cook. But but no, and and I'd love to try some of your products in, the, in that meal if I may. Ah, okay, um, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, we'll only do five thousand for the ingredients. No, that's great. So for a quarter, you want to you want to make a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment. You're going to own one percent of this company, right? So it's you know yeah. these are you know this uh, this is a good opportunity uh, for people to invest, and we'll include a link to the to the investment page. Thank you. Uh, so so people can check that out. I, I do want to ask you about the legality of the nonprofit promoting this for profit enterprise when it was a department of the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, obviously, like it, it would seem like less of a concern, but how does that work? Like you have a nonprofit 501c3 tax exempt charity. I presume yep. there must be some limitations on how much it can promote a for profit business that it is the primary shareholder of. Yeah. So, and, and we spent, wow, I mean, that's probably why it took us a total of nine months to get the thing actually spun out. So I was like, when I first got there, I'm like, December 31st, we'll be out of here. And they all started laughing. And I was like, oh, I had no idea what I was getting into. But it took a, a long nine months to to do everything from license agreements, uh, shared service agreements, all the things that that defined with external counsel we use and internal counsel we worked on this to define the relationship between us and them. We are we are a separate entity. They actually uh, can um, communicate about us to membership. We actually have an agreement where six times a year they will email their entire membership on our behalf. The first one of those. So we do that normally. It's kind of February, March, April, May, which is ramp up to gardening season and the start of gardening season. And then kind of September, October or August, September, because fall is actually the best time to plant your plants because then they grow their roots through the winter and then in the spring they really take off. But people like to garden in the spring. So that's when we hit them as well. The winter, we don't do co-marketing with them. And the reason why is because that's when people are fundraising and they didn't want competition with right. that. But from a legal point of view, you know, they actually have other partners and lots of not-for-profits have corporate partners that they can promote when they're doing it. Like one of our other big not-for-profits that we, we signed an agreement with in partnership with last year is the World Animal Protection, which is an awesome international not-for-profit. World Animal Protection U.S. is based in New York. Great group. And they promote us to their membership, but we don't get access to their members directly. They promote us to the membership. And if their members come and buy from us, now they're part of our customer base. Yeah, but that, and then uh, we promote them. I, I could, yeah, I could easily see how there's, you know, like some type of a affiliate program, right? Where like World Animal Protection says buy exactly. from you, and every and every you know sale they get something from that. I, I don't know enough about nonprofit law to answer the following question, but I, I would imagine like National Wildlife Federation, let's say they have a member magazine, right? And let's say it goes to their millions of of uh, donors, and there's ad space in that magazine right now. They take ads from. I don't know, you know, let's say, you know, Martha Stewart living, right? And then they say, okay, well, we're going to give a free ad space to Garden for Wildlife, something that we would have sold for, you know, $50,000 to somebody else. We're going to give it to them because we want to promote them. Yet they have a pecuniary interest in this company. So like, you know, how does that work? Are there any limitations at all? Or can they just turn their entire magazine into a free ad for Garden for Wildlife? Well, so it's funny you say that because they actually don't take ads and we actually do pay for the one ad that does go in there. Okay. Um, Well, yeah. Let's say their CEO goes on TV and says, Hey, everybody buy from go, go buy from Garden for Wildlife. It's a free ad that way. Right. Like how, how does it work? Are there any limitations at all? 
Not that not that we have come across in working with legal counsel as mm-hmm. long as we're not. So there are some very very strict restrictions on what not for profit. And I was actually got a really good article on this that I read on when a not for profit is getting funds from a for profit or some sort of like affiliate type program that they can't specify the amount they're getting on a transaction basis because that actually then triggers some IRS rules about their 501c3 and other. But to say, hey, we're in a partnership, you buy from them, we get funds, that is that is totally above board with the IRS. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for the education. I, I certainly appreciate that. And, uh, and that's, why, that's why four years of not going to law school <laughs> talking right there. So I would say, you know, kind of like they say, not financial advice, I'd say, well, well, we spent nine months talking lawyers, and this is what we came up with. I'm sure National Wildlife Federation is a pretty good council. Listen, very good, Shubber. You've done a lot of things in your life. You're now devoting yourself to trying to create better environments for wildlife and for humans who want to be able to enjoy wildlife as well. So my hat is off to you for that. I imagine that somebody with the uh, experience that you have has probably thought quite a lot about things that you wish existed that didn't that don't exist yet. And so let me just ask you, what, what do you hope somebody listening to this might take away and go start themselves? Like, What companies do you hope they will go start? And maybe they'll be on the show at a later date saying, ah, you know, that shover guy from Garden for Wildlife, he gave me this idea. And now I've started this company. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying everything's been done. It's just, it hasn't been done well enough that it's now a household name, which is why there's always opportunities, right? And I, there's a slide I used to show when I would give talks either in my class or lectures that I was doing was at Accenture that showed Craigslist and then showed it like all these startup companies and now very successful companies of their own right that took one piece of Craigslist and just focused on that thing and blew it out, whether it was a dating thing or a, you know, a, a sale thing or this or that or whatever else, right? So there's always opportunity for innovation. I preface by saying that because as soon as I say these ideas, people are going to say, oh, well, somebody's doing this. They're probably doing something like that, but that was usually the kiss of death phrase at big corporations as to why they wouldn't innovate. Because they're like, Oh, well, we looked at something like that. It's like, well, okay, but you didn't figure out the right problem to solve. And that's always the core of it is there's a great quote out there. Nobody knows where it came from, but it says, if you had an hour to solve a problem, spend 55 minutes defining it and five minutes solving it. Because really understanding the problem well, the solution becomes obvious. Most people jump in, I think that's the problem. And then they can't quite get product market fit, which is the latest term for that thing, right? Because they're never really understanding the problem well. So I'll give you the problem that I'm thinking about. There's two, one of which I actually did this as another pro bono project when I was at Accenture with Best Friends Animal Society, another fantastic not-for-profit out there whose mission is to end, is to create a no-kill country so that shelters stop putting animals down, specifically dogs and cats. And they're on a mission to get to that by 2025, and they've gotten a long way already. One of the things I talk with them about, which I think needs to be created at much larger scale, so more broadly, is what I call the platform for volunteers. And what I mean by that is, if you think about most of the not-for-profits out there that do fundraisers, walkathons, bikeathons, jogathons, fill-in-the-blankathons, they're taking generally very well-skilled, intelligent people with a huge amount of capital up here and asking them to walk in a straight line, bike in a straight line, run in a straight line, and have other people give them money for doing that. Instead of saying, how do I harness their brain power, their talents for my organization to solve this problem or this problem or build this business or this, solve this thing? And there's got to be some way to unpack that so that people can help organizations without having to go work for the organization, but in discrete bite-sized chunks, right? Almost like packetizing the internet again, right? How do you how do you take these tasks and make them small things or spin up little projects where people can work on it? There's a platform for that. We actually did this for Best Friends on getting volunteers to help tier three shelters become 
more efficient and more educated because best friends couldn't do it from a top down because they didn't have the resources. But they had donors who lived all over the country who were near these places. So if you could train them, they could do it as a volunteer basis. And that was this idea of how do you unlock the talent so they're not just writing you a check, but they're actually engaging in your mission. So that's one that could help the entire not-for-profit world, which I think is fantastic. The second one is, so I was taking a hike earlier today with my family when it was flurrying. It's now sunny here in Maryland, and we haven't really gotten snow. But when I first moved here four and a half years ago, having lived here three times before and having gone through big snowstorms, I thought, well, long driveway, I should get a snowblower. So I bought a snowblower. And for a year and a half, it sat in the box uh, because we didn't get snow. And I think I've used it twice in four and a half years. And I don't know if I'll use it again now, this year, global warming and all that. But that got me thinking about how everybody in my cul-de-sac has a snowblower. And everybody in my cul-de-sac has a fill-in-the-blank that you only use once or twice. And said so that part of how we fix the problem of the consumption-driven world is by saying, do I really need that thing or do I need to have access to that thing? And so if you can create a platform that allowed for localized asset sharing, so but you have to solve for problems like insurance and social credit and things that like, I can lend this or like one person can have this thing and it gets lent out and you make it super easy with QR codes and scanning and this and that. And ultimately, how do you make it so that we don't all need to buy one of everything when we don't all need one of everything? Because I've got so much stuff that I would, you know, back in the old days when you knew all your neighbors and you had all your friends and everything else, you just lend stuff, you lend tools, and you get them back. We've become so hyper fragmented. We don't do that very well anymore, but we should. And we can start to turn the, now, of course, corporate America will push back and say, well, these are the things we sell. Like, okay, but do you need to? Yeah. Could we maybe sell a little bit less of that and yeah. do something? Yeah, you know, interestingly, in Montgomery County, Maryland, where you live, in Tacoma Park specifically, there used to be a tool lending library. And so you could go to, it was kind of like, it was like a, it was like a shed. It was like a big shed. And this guy named Walt Rave, who sadly passed away, but he was the Tacoma Park tool librarian. And what's <laughs> really cool is that you could go there and not just borrow tools, but he would show you how to use them. And so like, you know, let's say, you know, a snowblower seems pretty self-evident how to use it, but a lot of tools, somebody who has very little, let's say carpentry experience, et cetera, might not know what to do. And so Walt, this guy, Walt Rave would actually help you use them. It was really cool. But now I I do use like the buy nothing groups on Facebook. So if you uh, go belong to the buy nothing group on, you know, like for your neighborhood on Facebook. And you have to prove that you live in the neighborhood in order to get into it. And I see it all the time on there. People not just giving away things, but learning stuff out. And so it's a nice, you know, it's not really a, you know, it's not really a business anybody has started. Well, I guess Facebook is the business, but, but it's still a good yeah, way. And Nextdoor could have done this, right? Right. Yeah. It's still, yeah. Nextdoor would have been open too. there, but right. yeah, exactly. But, um, but it, like I said before, it's not a household name. Therefore, it's still a problem worth solving. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. Just because there it exists somewhere, somebody else could do it. As I often say, like, you know, there's enough room in the world for McDonald's, Burger King and Wendy's, even though they're all selling burgers and fries. So, but there's enough room for all of them. Interesting choice for you. Yeah. 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 Well, (laughs) hopefully they will be, you know, there'll be enough room for all of them to be selling plant-based burgers only. So finally, Shubber, there's a lot of resources that you have already listed during this interview, and I'm going to be linking to all of them. So whether it's Nature's Best Hope or Last Child of the Woods or the Merlin app and so on, but are there any other resources that you haven't yet offered that you want to make sure people can check out any books or anything else that have been useful for you in your own journey as an entrepreneur and now as the CEO of this company? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, you know, I think... There's, I actually did a count on this, and, there, and I, I, I stopped counting over, I think, close to a 1,000. But there are so many countless books out there on innovation and starting a company and the rest. They don't 
it's 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 almost like a business racket in its own right. And like I would say, don't waste your time with that. If you just focus on the thing I said before, do you really understand the problem to solve? Because if you look at the best innovations out there, the best companies I've seen out there that start up and just get traction immediately, it's usually the the solution. Your your first reaction, my first reaction is always duh, because it seems so obvious once somebody does it that that was the right way to solve the problem. Which means they actually really understood the problem and solved it in a way that nobody thought of before. Look at those examples. I think the early TED Talk. There's so much out there now that's you know, it's like really like, oh, watch TED. But there were some great early TED Talks that I still go back to. Simon Sinek's TED Talk on the Golden Circle, which is from like 2007, is fantastic. The first six minutes are all you need if you don't want to watch the whole 18 minutes, but it's worth the 18 minutes. Where he goes to the why, how, and what, which became his whole thing about the Golden Circle and start with why that launched his career. But this is the original talk. Highly recommend it. Another one is The Sixth Sense, which was a talk by Patty Mays. M-A-E-S from MIT Media Labs. I think it was about 2009. And it starts to show an interesting problem consumers have that at the time they were looking at technology as a way to solve it. The problem still exists. I think it's a huge problem. But the idea of how you take information friction out of an equation so that you connect people with the information they need more easily can lead to all kinds of new opportunities in the marketplace out there. In, in that case, there was a very simple example of, you know, if you have preferences about the kinds of things you want to buy, like for instance, let's say you're vegan or you really care about carbon impact or whatever the thing is, if you could just pick up a product and it would tell you with a red, green, yellow light on it, does it meet your 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 belief structure? Does it meet your values? And if it doesn't, it shows you an alternative. Think about how that would change people's consumption. Because too many people, on the one hand, give money to causes or support you know, whatever thing they particularly care in, but at the same time, they're buying from companies and supporting businesses that actually violate their core values. And they don't know because that information is broken apart. If you can connect those two dots, it can have a huge impact, much more than many other things people could do. Yeah, I hope you're right. Um, I, I hope you're right. I have been consistently impressed by humanity's ability to uh, act quite differently as consumers than we do when we're dealing, let's say, with voting or other types of civic oriented things. I'll give you an example. So uh, if you think about like in California, where I live, um, two times, both in 2008 and in 2018, we've had votes on the treatment of egg laying chickens. Both times, two thirds of Californians voted to ban the caging of chickens, and the second time included the banning the sale of eggs from caged chickens. At the same time, however, when Californians voted to, to make it a crime to sell eggs from caged hens, 90% of the eggs being sold in the state were coming from caged hens. And so people were very willing to ban a practice that they themselves were basically engaging in uh, because we act very differently as customers than we do as uh, citizens, essentially. And the same is so all the time. I mean, we you know would say like, oh, well, I, you know, don't want to support like sweatshop labor or whatever. And, you know, we just buy the cheapest clothing, right? It's, it's obvious that, right. and it's not a condemnation. It's just means that we have a, a, a bug in our software that allows us to act very differently when we are acting as consumers than when we are acting as citizens. And so some way to try to harmonize that uh, would be quite helpful. And I hope that that can be achieved. Well, and, and the information is there. Somebody just needs to take the time to connect the dots and then to create essentially a self-validating system so that you know if you crowdsource the data on what a practice might be like this this company is engaging in sweats out labor for instance and that ties to the brands but you can also prevent a company from being 
unfairly blacklisted. In fact, they don't do that thing, but somebody puts them up there, right? So you, right. you have to have that that in there as well. But but you know, it's kind of like you were saying about uh, the egg laying. You know, I think for instance, a lot of people would object to gestation crates that they use in New Jersey for, for uh, pigs, pork production, right? Pigs. And and yeah, we use the euphemism of pork because we don't want to call it what it actually is because then you know it it makes it harder to to kill and eat it. But when people see it, if I've ever shown somebody a picture of one of these kids, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe that. I'm like, yes, but you enjoy your bacon. So you need to connect the dots. You need to see. Yeah, there was even, I was reading a book not too long ago about the anti-slavery movement. And really interestingly, in the mid-19th century in America, there were many people who were against slavery, especially in the North. But most of the goods, like the cotton, the sugar, the tea that they were using were still coming from slave labor. And so there were efforts to create free labor stores where all they sold was freely produced goods. That meant not just on the plantation, but also the boats couldn't have slaves on the boats who were shipping them up to the uh, stores and so on. And despite the large amount of anti-slavery sentiment in the North, especially in places like Ohio and so on, these free stores were a flop. People would not support them because they were more expensive. And this is a, a really good example of just like we're talking about, basically, where people are willing to take a stance and say that they oppose a certain practice, and in this case, the, the abomination of slavery. But when it comes to what we purchase, you know, if it costs more, uh, you know, if there's a cheaper option, it's it's pretty hard to for most people to say, oh, I'm going to switch. So which is there's, there's a reason why the, the big retailers, I won't mention their names, exist selling really, really cheap products because people will, you know, still want to get it for five cents less or 10 cents less. No doubt. But that being said, there, there is a segment of the economy and this is the same with, you know, technology adoption at, at some level, you know, DVD players started at a thousand dollars and they got down to, you know, sub a hundred dollars, but the people who could afford them first could afford them first. If you can connect with people who have the values and the capital to, for instance, I know there, there were some places in Colorado, I remember years ago reading about this, that just said, you know what? Okay, so wolves will eat some of our, our sheep that produce wool. What we're going to do is sell our wool slightly more expensively and say, but we don't kill wolves. And so there was, it was, it was wolf-friendly wool products. And it was a slightly slight premium on the product, but people were buying it because they connected the value of, I don't want wolves shot, so I can have slightly cheaper wool. Right, and there's, you know, and, and there... It- there are ways that you get the ball rolling, right? Like the progress begets progress. Like you can see how that eventually leads to a system that maybe even bans the wolf killing in the first place, like because you see there's demand for something like that. But I hope there's a lot of demand for Garden for Wildlife. I'm really looking forward to seeing you reach that 40 or $50 million in revenue and the quarter billion dollar valuation. I, I hope that I hope to see you at the IPO. It would be a really fun day seeing you at, at the stock exchange. So I hope all of that happens very much, Shubber, and I admire what you're trying to do here. And I look forward to following the progress that you make uh, with this company because the world needs it. The world really needs it. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate the time and and the great questions and, and just enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves. <laughs>